coming back, right? It feels like we're coming back. And it also feels like that this is a, a great uh, opportunity for us to uh, recalibrate, to kind of rethink um, family and job even. You know, some of you are starting to think about traveling again. Those of you who travel, some of you are going back to the office or your company's deciding new model, you know, we're mostly remote. But it, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a time of, of uh, drawing back in. And that gives us an opportunity to say, you know, hey, hey, wait, uh, how do we do this? How do we do this differently? How do we th- rethink about it? And the Bible has a word for that. It's repentance. And uh, the work of repentance is vital to our spiritual health. The work of repentance is vital to our spiritual health. It's how it all starts. It's how our spiritual life begins. We come to a point where we recognize maybe things were okay with uh, our family, or maybe things were okay with our work, or, or, or maybe they weren't. But at some point, we recognize, wait, this is not exactly something's missing. And, and we feel like we're off. We feel like the trajectory is not exactly what. And then we begin to realize maybe it's not exactly what God intended. And then we, we, we get confronted with the story of how God did what he did. It's an amazing thing. And he sent his son on our behalf and sacrificed for us and gave us an opportunity to, to be one with God and to align our lives with him. And we recalibrate. We, we get our lives in alignment with God. We repent and we go a different direction. I want to, um, not only that, but at the beginning and then throughout our spiritual lives, this, this activity of repentance continually happens. We continually begin to veer off course and we need to get back. Let, let me give you two analogies for repentance to, to drill down on it a little bit. Analogy number one is uh, an oil change. Repentance is to our spiritual lives what an oil change is to the maintenance of our vehicle. You know, a, a car engine has a lot of moving parts, and they're all, mostly all metal. And this is metal rubbing up against metal. Huge amounts of friction. Not only is it inefficient, but it produces heat, and, you know, the car can blow up. So we shoot oil through the whole mechanism. And the oil lubricates all of those connections. It also, oil, absorbs the heat of those exchanges. And then over time, you know, the oil breaks down and, and it loses its ability to both be a lubricant, it gets dirty, and it also loses its ability to absorb heat, so we change it out. And when you don't, let's say, for instance, you have children who went to Virginia Tech, they did not change their oil, the oil will blow up on its way. And it's hypothetical, but the, uh, the, the, the car engine will blow up on the side of the road. It could happen. Anyway, so uh, repentance is a spiritual life what? an oil change is to your car. Let me give you another analogy. Repentance is to our spiritual lives what a course correction is to a rocket. I'm going to go easy here because we actually have some rocket scientists in our church, but I looked this up on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is never wrong. So it says this, when a, when a space, spacecraft gets off trajectory, it must be put back on the right path The location of the spacecraft is determined and its course vector, which is the speed and the direction of flight, is calculated. And then a course correction is calculated to put it it back on the right path. There's a a repentance that needs to happen. So that that the, the, the 
uh, rocket is realigned with its, with its intended path. And this is what spiritual repentance does for you and I. So we're going to spend the summer talking about this kind of work because we've got an opportunity to do this right now as families and as individuals in our work and our spiritual lives physically. So we're going to use, um, spoiler alert, a pretty negative section of Scripture to highlight this for us. We're going to talk about a period of Israel's history when they were constantly, constantly given opportunities to turn. They were giving, given turning points and opportunities to get themselves realigned, and uh, they never did. This is essential work. It's also very sober work. I want to just read a small sampling of the times when the prophets, who were basically the people kind of speaking into to God's people, saying, hello, uh, when the prophets spoke this message. And I'm only going to choose a sample of those prophets who were speaking during the period of history that we're going to be covering this summer. By the way, listed on the wall underneath the screens are the kings of Israel that we will be uh, covering this summer. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Um, so, uh, the first prophet I want to read is Hosea from uh, Hosea chapter 14. I'd like to take responsibility for that. However, that would be a lie. Uh, you can thank Michelle Bowden who has hidden talents that we didn't know anything about. Um, Hosea in chapter 14, he's writing to the people, by the way, who, who he's writing exactly into the situation of the passage that we're going to be reading this morning. And our passage today, I'm not going to read it until the very end. We're going to end our entire time together by just reading this passage because it's so gripping. I mean, especially when you know the lead up to it. It's, it's powerful. It's, it's unnerving, kind of. But Hosea is writing to exactly that point in history. And he says this, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. I love this. Return. This is the word repent. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Look, you say to him, forgive all our sins, receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save you. And you're going to hear about Assyria this morning. Uh, we will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. Later, Isaiah was a prophet to a couple of these kings. Next week, uh, Alex will be our communicator. And Alex will be our communicator because Diane, my wife, and I are going to be, um, you know, it's a, it's a sacrifice for us. We're going to be um, suffering for Jesus at the beach. And so uh, uh, Alex will be talking about Hosea, and, I mean, uh, uh, Hezekiah. And Isaiah was a prophet, actually a court counselor, among other things. He was a court counselor to uh, Hezekiah's court. And uh, he spoke these words into the people of Israel and the court in particular. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Then later in his ministry, things are decidedly not looking good for the people of Judah. Isaiah is speaking to them uh, at a time when they're looking for God to intervene. You ever felt that way? The, the battle Jordan talked about? Isaiah said this. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Unfortunately, 
uh, Jeremiah would write near the end of this whole period and actually beyond this period. And Jeremiah got to see the tail end of the story that we're going to tell this summer. Jeremiah early in his ministry, chapter 8, verse 6, he said this. I've listened in attentively, but they don't say what's right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Instead, each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. And yet, and yet, Jeremiah, later in his ministry, when the die is cast, I mean, things are not going well. Judah is on the verge of downfall. Still, God says to them, chapter 18, verse 8, if a nation repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it that disaster I had planned. So we're going to get a long, I'm going to invite Becky Bellino to come if she would. We're going to get a long, um, difficult story this summer. So I'm telling you that in advance. Uh, as we unwind the history of Judah, I'll explain the Judah-Israel thing if you're ever confused by that when you're reading the Old Testament. We're going to unwind the, the latter chapter, the last chapter of the history of Judah over the course of this summer. And it's, it's not good. Again, spoiler alert, it's not good. So in the midst of all of that difficult news, we'll try to bring some hope periodically. And uh, one of those times is this morning, we're going to get an audiovisual aid this summer of the impact of the lack of repentance. When you don't do this work, when you have an opportunity at a turning point and you don't take it, you don't change the oil, you don't course correct, you don't listen, but I wanted us to hear this morning at the very beginning of this series what happens when you do. So Becky and her marriage are um, a, a brilliant example of the fruit of repentance when you do the work that God lays on your life and heart. So Becky, uh, you've been coming to Gateway how many years? A little over 20. Okay. I said at the 9 o'clock service, Becky was 17 when she came to Gateway. So she had a seven-year-old, but she's from California, and they do things kind of funny in California. Um, so, uh, Becky, um, you have written out your story, so why don't you share it with us? Okay, I'm going to read this because I get really nervous up here. Um, Ed told me he was going to be talking about repentance and asked if I could share how that has played out in my marriage. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Becky Bellino, and here is just a little bit of the backstory. I grew up in California and was raised Catholic. Tom and I met while in college on a summer job. He was going to Notre Dame and came from a big Catholic family. We dated for three years before getting engaged and then were married a year later. Married life started off so well. We lived in San Diego, had good jobs, and there was always something fun to do and the weather was beautiful. Our original plan was to wait five years before starting our family. But after three years, we decided we were ready. Our first son, TJ, was born prematurely and spent the first three months of his life in the hospital. He was really our miracle baby. Our lives had such purpose. However, when he was just 16 months old, TJ died suddenly. We were in our late 20s and dealing with a loss our family and friends couldn't relate to. Two years later, our son, Kevin, was born perfectly healthy. Unfortunately, we went on to suffer two more losses, a son, Dustin, who was stillborn, and a daughter, Allison, who died eight hours after birth. There really is a story within this story dealing more with loss and grief that I can share another time. 
I bring this up here to explain some of what we were dealing with early in our marriage. Tom was offered a promotion at work that came with a transfer to Virginia. I was looking forward to a fresh start where no one knew of our sadness. I had hit a breaking point, but I didn't really show it. I had to carry on. But inside, I was crumbling. My faith, I kept up the practice. We still went to church every Sunday, but I was just going through the motions. Tom and I were both very sad and hurt, so it was hard to pull the other up. He later told me that he thought his job as a husband was to ensure my happiness. We, know, we now know that that should never be the goal. We settled into life in Ashburn. Our daughter Katie was born after a very stressful pregnancy. Tom busied himself at work, traveling a lot, and working long hours. I was now a stay-at-home mom taking care of two small children. I felt like I had to be on top of things, in control, lest something bad happens. I knew I was missing something in my life. I wanted that God connection again. I don't think I mentioned I distanced myself for a while because <laughs> I didn't know how to process all our grief. This was about the time I started living another nightmare. Tom had sunk into a serious depression. I encouraged him to get help, and he started seeing a psychiatrist and then a therapist. We didn't want to share this with anyone. He didn't want me to share it with anyone, so I tried my best to put on a happy front. Coincidentally, or not, it was at this time that a neighborhood friend invited me to a Bible study. I had never done a Bible study before and was very excited about it. Well, as God often does, he was putting me in exactly the right place at just the right time. I was learning, growing, and feeling the God connection again. I started feeling oppressed to talk to Tom about our marriage. I was feeling a huge disconnect. It was at this time that he confessed that he had been unfaithful. Shocked doesn't even begin to explain it. I never would have thought him capable of this, and apparently that is what led him to his deep depression. He had done something he never thought he would, and he didn't feel God could ever forgive him. So what was the point of living? I felt so hurt, so betrayed, and so unloved. But here's the cool part. Amid my despair, God showed up in a very real way for me. I can remember where I was in my car, what I was doing, driving down Route 7, bawling my eyes out, and wondering and worrying about what to do. It was at that moment that God entered in. I didn't hear an audible voice, but he spoke to me just the same. I knew at that moment that God loved me, and even if no one else ever did, I would be okay. Nothing else mattered. I didn't need to worry about the details. Code for, I didn't need to control this. He would take care of me. This freed me to tell Tom that it was up to him. If he wanted to work on our marriage, I was willing. If he decided to leave, I wasn't going to beg him to stay. He had to decide. What's interesting is he expected me to kick him out because he felt that that was what he deserved. And I just put here that sometimes going the other way can seem easier than turning around. So much started happening at this time. I started to share with my Bible study what was going on. As a result of opening up to them, I was invited to attend a small group at a church called Gateway that I had never attended. Tom came and checked it out too. We felt loved and welcomed and eventually shared our mess with the group. We began attending services here, and often Tom would be in tears with several people praying over him. He started attending a men's Bible study. We both learned about God's grace and how it's freely given, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus did for us. What an eye-opener for both of us. What freedom this brought. Tom and I were baptized at Gateway in February 2001. We both had lots of issues to work on, but we now had a supportive community to help us. We had a good dose of Christian counseling, love, support, prayer, and encouragement from our new Gateway family, and lots of God's grace and mercy. Tom was such an example to me of reborn. He became a new man. 
Such a weight had been lifted from him. He now knew who he was, and his identity was in Christ. And he wanted to share that with others, especially other men who were struggling. Our marriage became stronger and better than I ever would have thought possible. And it's not because of anything we did. It's because of what God did in us and through us. We began doing studies together, praying together, eventually leading a small group, and Tom a men's group too. His restoration went as far as him being elected an elder here at Gateway. Because of what we went through, we grew closer to God and as a result to each other. I am so grateful that God exposes our sins so that we can repent and forgive. I'm not saying that any of this was easy or quick for us, but it certainly was the most worthwhile thing we ever did. Neither of us had any idea what was coming, but in the summer of 2017, Tom would discover he had cancer, and in March of 2018, he would be called home. He was 55 years old, and we'd been married 32 years. I'm eternally grateful that we are given the chance to change direction and that God redeemed our marriage and, most importantly, our lives. So, um, Becky, I've often heard repentance uh, broken down into component parts. One part, recognize our sin. A second part is confess our sin. A third part is ask forgiveness. And um, then fourthly, to turn away from our sin. What, um, what, what of that is, uh, was hardest for you? I think it can all be hard, because once <laughs> you start, you kind of you really need to carry it through. Um, I think for Tom, the confessing the sin was, a, was hard. Um, the asking for forgiveness is definitely was difficult too. Um, and for me as well, because being raised the way we were and some of our beliefs early on, we really felt we weren't, couldn't be forgiven. Um, I mean, we couldn't forgive ourselves. How could God forgive us? I hadn't thought of that. You said that earlier and, and that asking forgiveness elements difficult because and it includes being willing to receive it, being, right. uh, recognizing that you're loved and you deserve uh, forgiveness. Sometimes people say what's harder to ask for forgiveness or to give forgiveness. Mm. Thank you, Becky. Okay. Um, So I said we were going to talk about this this summer, repentance. Um, I want to set what we're going to do this summer in context, if I can. So the first thing that we need to do is get a a geographical context for uh, our topic this summer and for the period that we're going to be covering, the period of history. Pete, can you throw the map up for us on the wall? So I want you to imagine now that you are, here's the perspective. Let's imagine we're all, look at this map as if you're sitting on a boat out in the Mediterranean. So that would be nice, wouldn't it? So uh, situate yourself and you're looking at the map that way. And when you see Canaan, you know, that's the old school uh, version of Israel. That's where Israel was and Judah. Again, I'll be explaining the difference between those in a second. So imagine you're looking across at Judah, and uh, you know, to, your, to your right uh, is Egypt, and to your left is Assyria. Behind that is Babylon or Babylonia. Well, guess what? Uh, you are divided into those sections this morning. That's why you came in with different colored chairs today. And um, we've got a, a row of white in the back. You're actually Assyrian infiltrators. We're going to let you guys play the role of Assyria, even though you're in Babylon. 
So uh, I'm going to ask if you would first, let's have a serious stand. And those of you who are in white chairs, let's stand together. You're, you are representing a Syria, so a situate, your, situate yourself there. You are, at this point in history, you are the big guy on the block, and you will be the one who will eventually come in and ransack Israel, siege Samaria, the capital city, and, and deport everyone. So Assyrians, here's what I want you to say. I want you to say, we're number one, and we probably always will be. Okay, that's pretty good. We need to hear that one more time. And what I want the rest of us to listen to is the second part of that phrase. We're number one. We probably always will be. All right, you may be seated. Um, uh, there was a couple of arrogant Assyrians there, I thought. You know, did you notice that? Don't you sometimes, don't you sometimes feel that that's the way we feel as Americans? That we probably always will be part? How silly that is. Uh, okay, to, to the rear are the Babylonians. And so those of you who are in the green seats, you are in Babylon. And Babylon, listen, is already, at this point in history, is already making noise. You're eventually going to rattle your swords loudly enough that you will ransack Assyria. You'll take over, and you will be the ones who ultimately destroy King Nebuchadnezzar, will ultimately destroy Judah. So uh, Babylonians, would you stand? And I want you to say, uh, we're number two and we're coming for you. And the Babylonians were pretty disorganized, evidently. Um, so uh, this time when you say it, I want you to point at the Assyrians and say, we're number two and we're coming for you. Uh-oh, they're beginning to get their act together, okay? And now you're going to say it to poor little pitiful Judah who thinks that they can withstand you because of Yahweh, and yet they're not even really trusting in him. So you're going to say, you're going to point at the Judites, you're going to say, we're number two and we're coming for you. Okay, you may be seated. Uh, we've also got uh, Egypt. Um, Egypt has been the preeminent world power for centuries. They are no longer. They're an echo of their former selves. And honestly, their name carries a lot of weight. They don't really play a very big part in our story, except for Judah is constantly looking for somewhere to get help. Egypt, would you stand? Egypt, you're in blue. You stand, if you would, okay. And you say, uh, we used to be number one. Yeah, that's about right. You can be seated. Okay. Uh, and that's about all the protests that Egypt puts up at this point. And now I would like for poor and pitiful little Judah, if you would stand in the orange chairs, Judah stand uh, timidly. Yes, there are only a small, this is about right. So uh, Judah at this point is declining. And they're looking for help. They go to the little nations around them and try to cobble things together if they can. They even go to Assyria itself and try to make a deal with Assyria. That doesn't go well. They try to seek help from Egypt. Egypt is, you know, barely there, and they're only after their self-interest. So Judah, I want to hear you say, uh, anybody want to make a deal? 
That's about right. You can be seated. Okay, let's, let's get the timeline for where we are in, in history. If you can't see this, well, that's okay. I just want you to get a feel for it. You've got, by the way, a handout, and it's great. I recommend you take this home and use it as a reference. It gives you the world powers. It gives you the prophets and when they spoke and who they spoke to. It's color-coded. You'll figure it out eventually. Then on the back side of it is a blown-up portion that relates specifically to the period of history that we're going to be covering this summer. But let me, let me situate you. Uh, you had uh, these wandering tribes of Israel, and the, they're, they're pretty creative and pretty potent, but they don't really have this national identity. They settle in the land, and eventually they begin to organize, and, and they elect a, uh, a king, Saul, and he's a little bit crazy, so he get de gets deposed by David. This happens, you know, about 1000 BC, and then David's son Solomon rules over Israel at its peak, so I want you to imagine now, I've blown up that one portion of the map, and this is the Mediterranean. Here are you and I out here on our boat. And this is, uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna do this in red. You're not gonna be able to see it at all. But this is Israel essentially under Solomon. And it was pretty expansive, and it was becoming a regional power. It was on its way to, to perhaps even becoming an international power, a power that could have fulfilled God's purpose for it to be a lighthouse to the rest of the world. But no, after Solomon's kingship, they have a civil war and the, the nation divides in half and the northern part of the kingdom calls itself Israel and the southern part of the kingdom calls itself Judah. And that's where you hear those terms in the Old Testament. And the capital of Judah, Jerusalem, is in Judah. And then over time, they war with the little nations around them. They even war with one another. The territory shrinks on both sides. And you end up with this. And in, so Solomon, 931 B.C., he dies. Civil war, it breaks in half. 722 B.C., Assyria, under uh, King Shalmaneser, comes into Israel and wipes it out. And that's the passage we're going to read this morning. And what I want you to get this morning when you hear this, it's overwhelming. You've read this before in, in your quiet time of devotional life as you've gone through and you read it, oh well. But they, this is 200 years of history and God's divine plan and it's dispensed with in a paragraph. Because they have so turned away from God so consistently with so many turning points and they didn't listen. And so they're devastated. They're deported. They're, their stones are not left on one another. And Judah is left like a lone flag flapping in the breeze. Prophets come to her. Wake up. Jerusalem is still my city. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. 586 B.C., now Babylon, under uh, the rulership of King Nebuchadnezzar, they come into uh, Judah and wipe her out. And this summer, this is the period of history that we're going to be covering. We're calling it turning points. And we honestly are hoping and praying that you will have many turning points this summer and that you'll seize it. You'll grab the opportunity to, to 
course correct to change the oil. All right, let's look at this passage. And if you have a Bible, we'll end with this. If you have a Bible, look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 17. You can look at it on your phone if you don't, or it will be on the screen for us. We just want to read this as our uh, benediction this morning. 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, and I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 6. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, and whenever they, they do this throughout First and Second Kings, they'll just give you their, their way of time signature. You know, they don't say 709 B.C. They'll give you the reference of what's going on. They'll tell you who was king here when they're really talking about this, or vice versa. Or they may even tell you who was king here or who was king here. So uh, in the twelfth year of, king, of, of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. He reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. He's not saying that he wasn't evil like the kings of Israel before him, or he's not saying that they were good, but he was evil. He's saying he's not quite as bad as they were, but he still did evil. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal. Listen to this weird thing that Hosea is trying to do. And it paid him tribute, but the king of Assyria discovered that uh, Hosea was a traitor, for he sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as if that plan is going to work, as he'd done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the, deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah and Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. That's it. After all this time, that's it. I've got to read you what uh, one commentary said about this. I don't want you to feel the impact of this. That's what one guy said. A long time has passed since the prophet Ahijah told the wife of Jeroboam, that idolatry would lead to Israel's exile. So prophet Ahijah is back here. Solomon, Solomon dies. Ahijah, uh, Jeroboam becomes kind of the rebel that initiates the civil war, creates Israel. A prophet goes to his wife, says, this is not going to end well. Over these 200 years, Israel has seemed determined to make this prophecy come to pass. No reform occurs. No real repentance emerges. No leader calls a halt to pagan worship. No prophet is taken seriously. Thus, the spare, unadorned description of Samaria's fall is dramatic, only in the sense that it is Israel's final scene. God's grace alone has delayed the fall this long. Uh, chapter 17, verses 7 through 14. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods, and they, and they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They were creative in their idolatry. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right from, from watchtower to fortified city. They built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. 
At every high place, they, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They, they worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey. And I'll deliver, and I deliver to you through the servants, my servants, the prophets. But they wouldn't listen. And were stiff-necked as their fathers who didn't trust in the Lord their God. All right, enough. The way forward for us is clear. Uh, either we can choose the path of repentance, the sometimes difficult path of repentance. We can be soft towards God's ways. We can listen. We can recognize that we need help. We can be open constantly to reminders, constantly open to the need to course correct, to change the oil, to repent. Or we can do it our own way. We get another reminder this morning. We have a, uh, at least monthly, audiovisual aid, uh, an observance that reminds us of our need and what he's done. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. Um, Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he was having, I've said this before at Gateway, but it deserves to be said again now. Uh, they were observing the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was the meal that, that uh, God had instituted for uh, his people to be reminded, to keep their hearts soft, to be reminded of the need for course correction. Uh, they, once a year, they would observe this meal in which they would, each element of the meal was a remembrance of the story of God's deliverance out of Egypt. And, and this is a way of reminding themselves, oh, we are a people, all people are, but we are a people who need God. Oh, we were in chains and he set us free. Oh, he can always, he can always deliver us if we would just trust in him. Oh, and this was a annual big epic opportunity to course correct. On that night, Jesus was observing this meal, a 1,400-year-old meal, and he did what no self-respecting rabbi should ever do. He reinterpreted it. And he said, this meal is about me. All of that pointed to me. I'm the deliverer. I'm the one that sets you free. I'm what you need. I'm the way forward. So let's course correct.